Hello and welcome to Reboot. I'm your host Paul Bolton, 21st Century Enrollment Management. And like we always do, I'm going to jump right into it today. Um, and I am sitting here uh, with uh, Kurt Jefferson. And he is, uh, you know, I'm not, I was getting ready to introduce you, Kurt, but I'll just go ahead and let you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background. Um, and just for those that are just tuning in, our focus today on the show is we're, we're definitely going to be discussing uh, graduate uh, education, higher education. Uh, we're going to touch a little bit on leadership and then just also issues that uh, you know we're facing currently in higher ed on both the undergrad and graduate level. So, uh, Kurt, uh, go ahead and take it away. Thank you, Paul. It's, it's great to be here with you. Um, uh, I am Kurt Jefferson. I'm the Dean of Graduate Education at Spalding University in Louisville, Kentucky. I've been here um, for about nine months, so I spent the first uh, 30 years of my career, 29 years in Missouri, and spent 24 and a half as a senior international officer, assistant dean over the Churchill Institute for Global Engagement, as well as a professor at the same university, Westminster College. So um, it's great to be in, in Louisville um, and, uh, you know, moved to Missouri to do my graduate work at the University of Missouri. So I've been, I've been in higher ed for many years at, you know, from a professor rank in the classroom for a long time. Uh, I'm a political scientist by training, so I taught international and European politics for many years, saw it from that side. I've gone into administration deeper about seven years ago, higher education, so I'm, I'm learning a lot. I've been a program chair, a department chair, a division chair, and now sitting in the dean's office is a, is a very interesting, eye-opening thing, but especially in the graduate area, so that's kind of where I am today. Yeah, so let's tell me about like where where is graduate education today? What are, what are some of your thoughts on that? Well, I think one of the things I'm learning about grad education is that um, it is a diverse and variegated field series of fields, and it's a very different kind of uh, management than managing, say, the undergrad, um, which is in some ways fairly. Um, predictable you you have numbers programs lots of majors and minors and so forth and then you have a a, a grouping of departments or schools and so, these kind of things grad the grad area are all very highly specialized programs and they all have very different needs they they cater to different pockets of student groups and the market and it's nuanced in different ways and so i've enjoyed I've enjoyed getting to learn about that. We have at Spalding, where I am currently, 12 graduate programs, and um, they have some similar needs. Everybody needs marketing. Everybody needs budget. Everybody needs to figure out digital and social media. But, but at the same time, um, the needs of the, the student market today are different than they were years ago. So for example, um, I know a university that's an R1, we're an R3 here at Spalding, but a Research One institution that focuses mainly on graduate rather than undergrad, puts a lot of resources into research dollars and whatnot, they're going to have a lot of them. I went to the University of Missouri. They probably have well over 150 master's degrees, probably 40 or 50 PhD programs. And the difference with a smaller school, and I've been in the private higher education space 25 of my 30 years, the last 25 at a couple smaller liberal arts colleges and now at a private, um, you know, smaller university. 
you know, our, our, our interests are, are very different. You know, we're looking at um, career paths. We're looking at uh, finding professional students who want to come into graduate and professional programs. Uh, we're not necessarily trying to get students that want to go in and get a PhD and become a college professor and do research for the rest of their lives. We're looking at trying to get nurses and occupational therapists and, and even clinical psychologists into the working world and learning those, those you know, applied skills that they're going to take from graduate school. You know, our MSBC program uh, is going, which is a Master's of Science in Business Communication, is going to give professionals working in the field early in their career or mid-career um, the kind of skills to go back and get a promotion or become a higher level manager of some kind. So I think in the, in the actual academic sense, the academics are still there, the research by the professor and even the students is still there, but it's, it's a different kind of application than it might have been even 15 years ago. You know, some of the things you just described about the graduate student though, and uh, we've discussed this outside of podcast is the uh, the, the, there's a lot of traits that, and a lot of the same enrollment procedures and uh, objectives and barriers that you find with a graduate student as you would with a uh, adult learner uh, looking to finish their undergrad. It, what, what's been your experience in, 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 in kind of seeing what some of those trends are? And then also, um, yes, I know the academic obviously is going to be a little more intense yeah. on the graduate, but just that desire to complete and move on. Um, and I think the goal behind that sometimes can align with what a graduate student would be looking at. Well, I think it's a great question. You make some very good points in that, in that question. And I've given this a lot of thought because the traditional graduate experience was you apply for as many graduate programs, whether a master's or, a, or, or beyond, and you go to where they're going to give you a lot of money where you don't have to necessarily pay for much of it, if any of it, and it's kind of was a game that, that institutions played. Um, today, as I know in the private higher ed space, which you and I both know well, uh, you know the public space very well, I know it somewhat well, but the reality is, um, you know, students are having problems accessing higher ed because they don't have the funding to pay for more costly programs. So, you know, that's something that's a big barrier right off the bat. It's the same in undergrad. I mean, the students that don't have access to grants and loans and, you know, financial aid and scholarships and whatever it may be. So that was one of the first things I've been trying to do is figure out, you know, what kind of money do we have for graduate assistantships? What kind of money do we have in the federal grant realm for our students, which we do have some of those that provides generous, generous tuition remission? Uh, what kind of private scholarships do we have? I know everybody, at both undergrad and grad, does this, but we don't think about it as an intentional lever to get graduate students, I think, into the fold. Um, the other element, I think, there are several other things. Um, for graduate programs, the market is, has gotten saturated in a lot of fields. So the old model was faculty, and I'm speaking strictly about grad programs, faculty would have a graduate program, it would be growing well, and the way they grew it, the admissions reps were really the fellow faculty. Well, call your buddy over at State University or call your buddy up at 
private university in the state, three states over, and see if they have three good students they can send us. And that model still happens. I used to send students to my undergraduate alma mater, which had a master's program, to grad school because they would call me, the chair would call me and say, Kurt, do you have any good students that, we, that you could send to us this year? That still happens, but that, that is changing because, one, the, the funding for teaching assistantships and things is drying up, but also because the faculty don't have the capacity to do their busy jobs, sit on committees, teach, do everything else, and then be admissions counselors as well. So increasingly, and you know this because you're in the thick of this and enroll in the enrollment management side, increasingly we're having to hire professionals who do this work and and the only key that I see, one of the barriers in the in, in recruitment process, and I'd be curious about your thoughts on this because I'm, you may disagree with me. Is we, don't have you, enough, we don't have enough time for all this. <laughs> the, the, exactly. The, the faculty um, may not communicate as well with the enrollment services professionals about what the actual needs are, what kind of students they want in the program, or if it's possible to recruit some students into the program. So, so I think that's one thing. The other thing is um, that I found out some interesting data at a meeting I was at recently, so much of the tech, we're sitting here talking into technology on this podcast, your podcast, um, students, I saw a number that just blew me away, and I got my doctorate in 1993, which is several years back, and I've been in higher ed for a long time, but, but basically, 20% of American grad students want to write their papers on their cell phones. That just absolutely blew me away. But if you don't have apps, you don't have connectivity, a digital presence, etc. today, you're not going to recruit grad students. So that I'll leave it at that. But those are kind of some of my initial uh, situations. One other, th I'll say one thing quickly, and that is um, also services for writing, services for mental health, other things are very important for grad students that we've completely left off the table that we normally do for undergrads. Mm -hmm. And uh, people don't realize, and I heard a stat at a meeting I was at in Chicago a few weeks ago with grad deans, and one is the second biggest killer of grad students is suicide. So the pressure, the stress, and we don't really have any mechanisms or, or campus, uh, not at Spalding, we do have a behavioral an, an, a counseling center for, for students. But those resources specifically for graduate students need to be beefed up, in my opinion. Right. Or introduced. And then we talk so much about access uh, for education, but also access to those services. There's a lot of, uh, I would say, they're non-traditional, the adult learner, graduate uh, student, that they're either a commuter student or they're online. Um, and they don't know what... Uh, what all the benefits of being a student are because the, I, I believe that they uh, it's been my experience they associate them, themselves very much with the, the the cohort of the program and not as much as the university mm -hmm. so uh, and I've seen that um, as, as the listeners know I've worked in the enrollment uh, pieces of things and also in uh, advancement and alumni so I've seen the students on both ends and uh, that's one of the feedback I never, you know I was I went to school there and finished my degree but and sometimes it's it is there's other wraparound services for uh, graduate and adult learners that uh, sometimes we think well we send an email out or you know it's in their portal so obviously those are services they can have but we got to tell them how to get there and why that would be something that have, uh, of importance you know so um, you brought up a good point uh, the with the recruitment and the enrollment side of things that 
yes, there a lot of the recruitment was housed within that program, whether it was by the you know the program chair um, or associate dean of the program. Uh, but there there are a lot of things asked of those uh, uh, professionals today that maybe weren't. Um, but I will also say I, I'd add something else to it: the re- recruitment landscape has changed. Um, so that way to actually reach those students isn't the same. And uh, there's other resources that need to be added to that. And I also think there's a certain professional development that has to go along with uh, graduate recruitment and adult student recruitment of having those conversations. The way that I uh, like to speak to programs about that is um, let me be the human filter for your program. You know, and I know that you all, some of you all that are out there that are listening that are in enrollment management or in the admissions office, you know, those are things that we have to kind of take to that program and I'm a big proponent of. I've got to get out of the admissions office, walk around the campus and have some meetings and sit down with people, um, professionals and let them know that here's, well, I'm trying to enhance what it is you do and alleviate some of that. And then what I need from you is, you know, help me sell your program. Tell me, tell me what those beneficial things are. I'm a recruiter. <laughs> I recruit. Uh, and and I won't get too long-winded on this, but it's no different than the conversation I think that happens in the uh, the business sector, which is we need new this. We need you know we need to do a better job with um, our sales team or you know uh, a different team with, within an organization. And those conversations happen in a vacuum, and then they don't have an HR generalist or a professional at the table. Those things happen. You know, if you told me that what you need, we need maybe need to rewrite the job description. And then also look at what that person needs to be doing uh, to benefit this department a little bit better. But you have to invite me to those meetings. Mm-hmm. But and then and this is a great time to segue into leadership. But I will say this, and I was actually going to do an episode on this. But admissions leaders, enrollment management leaders, people that you know, you want to have a voice on campus. You see the day to day. You see the trends and the data. You're gonna have to get a voice and really get out there. Um, get some data behind you. Just don't start making anecdotal type of remarks, but go out there and say, here, we can do better. Um, but it starts with each of us. Um, and if we don't say anything, there's never gonna be an opportunity when really uh, you know the, the enhancements you could bring to a specific academic program. Uh, and not saying that there's anything wrong with the program, but why not even make it even better? Yeah, um, and I think you know enrollment, man, you know admissions and recruitment plays a large role in, in some of those pieces. So, um, you know, but and before we go into leadership, Kurt, let's talk about some, some, what are some of the issues that you see. You've spent a lot of time in higher ed, way longer than I. Um, they're facing higher education today. Well, um, I, I I appreciate what you just said because first of all, number one, this is in a way a positive issue. Um, is the data-driven culture that's being built now. I know it's taken off of predictive analytics and in, in online businesses and, and AI businesses and different areas that are evolving, the Googles and Facebooks and whatnot. Um, and I realize uh, data doesn't solve every problem. Humans have to interpret it. Machines can interpret it. But but there are issues with it. Um, you, anybody who ever took a grad course where you had to make statistical inferences realizes that subjectivity comes into some of this. But, and, and I'm actually reading an interesting book by a history professor 
uh, on called The Tyranny of Metrics, which is an anti-data-driven book. But I'm reading it because I've, I've been reading a lot on how to do data-driven analyses and make that part of what we do in higher ed. But, um, you know, I think the, the enrollment uh, and admissions professional side of the house actually is was, was out doing data-driven stuff years ago. It's just it's just that now it has to be so much more important. And I like what I'm seeing in my new position because we, where I came from, there were people doing it in pockets around the campus, but we never had a holistic approach to getting everybody kind of contributing. Now, we're far from where uh, we want to be, but at least it's on people's radars, and it's actually helping us think about it. But that's one issue. I think the other issues tie into a number of things. I think the issue of... Um, accessibility, you mentioned that for different types of students, the underserved uh, students. Um, I know at Spalding where I work now, the, the, uh, the first generation student is a big student. Um, my wife was a first generation college student. My dad was a first generation college student. So I fully understand the pitfalls of when you have a parent or a loved one or a guardian who says, why would you spend $100,000 on an undergraduate education. Um, I've, I've, I have loved ones in my own family who say this to me. Mm -hmm. And I'm just trying to say, take one class on, <laughs> and I'm a political scientist, I told a, a family member, take one class um, in political science and tell me if it doesn't benefit you because you're gonna learn about bureaucracy, the courts, legal issues, uh, how, how checks and balances work. And then that'll help you understand your own business in terms of its relation to government. So little things like that um, are, I think, a, a barrier to students having access. I also think, of course, the financial, here's an interesting stat that um, one of the people I really like to read um, and hear, and I'm, with, I, I'm tied to him on LinkedIn, and he has a great book called The New American University, is the president of Arizona State University, Michael Crow, who is trying to create an accessible, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, diverse um, applied university that thinks um, local to glo global to local and is a lot like some of the things a lot of universities are wanting to do because the generation is a little more idealistic that's in, in school today compared to even my generation from the 1980s and, and, and he, he has said in his book that if you start a community college program and you fail to graduate, your chances of graduating with a bachelor's degree are 4%. And um, I think for minorities, it's even worse. So those kind of things, I think we have to be cognizant of, and there are impediments like the cost of the program, uh, um, you know, the cost of books, other kinds of things that end up, I think, playing into that. I also think there's another philosophically a trend that, that is confronting American universities, and that is, Kind of the, um, and, and I don't like to say this because I know faculty like to harp on this, but it's almost as though there's a loss of respect for what higher ed is all about in the community. And I think um, that's led to the making higher ed this absolutely practical, you know, kind of let's put the liberal arts core back on the sideline and make everybody needs to be a business major or a health education major or a nursing major or whatever and and that's one of those are the things we do well in our grad programs at Spalding we we uh, meet the needs of the times in the city of Louisville and, and beyond but but I do think there are problems with the idea that 
a liberal arts core isn't good. And fundamentally, my current institution and my last one, Westminster College in Missouri, were both liberal art at their core. And the reason I think that's important is it focuses on something that I've always called learning for learning's sake. And that's what teaches you to be a critical thinker and a lifelong learner. Well, you know, you bring up a good point. It's just uh, hitting on the liberal arts piece of it. And with your background being in uh, universities that have the liberal arts degree, it seems to me that there's a there there is this like stigma that kind of hangs over uh, the liberal arts degree. But I, I I really think that it comes down to who you ask them, what day of the week you ask them. There's a very and this can happen within an institution and outside of institution. There's a, there's a, anecdotal accusations that are made that just because of what you watched on the news that day this now becomes fact and there's a residual impact of that where culture is even going to embrace it or, or not embrace it but that could change and then you have a all you need is a celebrity on shark tank now to say that there's value in a liberal arts degree yeah. and it changed it trends right. for like a couple of weeks and you right. see your enrollment spike a talking you know? head <laughs> right but then it changes you know because right. somebody else was you know and you know right. it brings it to another point um with the enrollment piece of it um always being my focus the 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 early stages on it, with access and just the financial barriers and things um when we are enrolling, when we are meeting with a prospective student in the virtual realms or on campus, I think that it's important that we take in consideration that we're not just enrolling that person. We are we are enrolling their their business. They're enrolling their uh, their peers at their place of work. We're enrolling their family, uh, siblings, and loved ones. Because, and I say that because they have. We are selling an intangible good to them. And the only way that they're going to be able to do it and move forward is if they're able to also communicate and sell that to those around them that want that they want support from. It's a great point. And we have to take that in consideration. That can change. And you know what? The thing about that is, is data won't show you that, it's right? A great. Point. And we re- we rely on data, and that's where we have to also rely on the development of the people. That hey, so your communication with this, you know, prospective students, um, graduate or undergrad, uh, you need to take some, you know, we need to look at some human relations, interpersonal skills that go along with it. That's why you would want a recruiter to have a specific amount of time um, with that student to assist with the overall benefits of the program, but also speak in that program in a way that maybe. Not that a faculty member would do it incorrectly, but I think that's two different pieces of it. I, I used to tell students a lot, still do, uh, don't don't jump into the syllabus um, right now. We're just, we're meeting. You're not going to understand what any of it means. And some of those courses you're even pointing at right now, you're not even going to be at for another year or two. Yeah, um, yeah. So you got some time, and we, we gradually get you there. Um, yeah. So, But th- the same thing is, is... Yeah looking at that Don't program. Don't it off all at once. Right, and that's also yeah. why even you know with admissions and what you're seeing on the front line where you should be an indirect leader to voice some of those concerns that are coming from families and or my employer's not going to pay for that. Um, you know, you need to teach people like what the actual benefit is and then also you need to think in the organization uh, the university of hey, so what are the career pathways for this degree? I'll tell you right now the best resource for that is your faculty and having the conversation outside. Where, where are those alumni going? You know they're in contact with them. Um, to really kind of formulate that, because you have to be able to help somebody paint what that intangible goal is, 
so they can take it home and like this is what I can do with this um, yeah. and if they don't have that it's gonna make our jobs a lot harder on the front end but you know also we want them to feel good about the decision it might not be exactly what they thought it was in the first place mm-hmm. I heard a uh, prof- you know a uh, university professional and I forgot what university it was but here's the bottom line what they said is we're not just about application submissions we're about finding the right person for the right program yeah the right, right fit the right fit you got right because when we when we enroll in any team that I'm going to be working with we're not enrolling first-time students or transfer students we're enrolling future alumni and we have to look at it that way um, and if we don't at that point we're just enrolling bodies yeah and that's where it higher ed kind of gets a little skewed and I say yeah. there's an issue out there with that um, not at every school but certain schools there could be and I think when we do that, it kind of skews everybody's view of, oh, that university just wants your money. Yeah. Now, yeah, yeah. they do because they, <laughs> yes, there, it is a financial thing too. Sure, However, sure. we're also trying to make sure that you are becoming part of, yeah. you know, the economic growth of the city and yeah. all the other benefits and things that will change because of your uh, right. degree. We, yeah, I, you've made several great points there. And I think number one, it's a people business. Even though we're going more and more to asynchronous online, we're going to, you know, people spending hours and hours a day on email, nobody's willing anymore to pick up the phone, that kind of thing. At the end of the day, even if you do it all online, you still can Skype with people. You still pick up the phone and have a conversation with them. And if we forget that, why are we in the business to begin with? I think the other point, uh, you, you made a couple other great points there. Um, and, and thinking about uh, the fit, that was the other point I wanted to make. And that was, you know, we've gotten into this issue in higher ed because it's, it is a business generally, um, which I know is a 501c3. Uh, a lot of people, well, we're a nonprofit and all that. But the reality is, is that you still don't want, I don't want every Spalding student to go to our grad program. I think we want to have a lot, have a bridge, a four plus one, but the reality is, is that some students who've lived in Louisville their entire life need to get out and go to the University of Texas or go to the University of Kansas and get their graduate degree. Yeah. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. So I, I think, you know, it, it's a, we're in a noble calling, Paul, but I think also, that well, if, we keep the right the, thing for the if we do if the leadership thing is really doing the right thing for the students and and keeping the people part involved right so let's go into um uh you know we don't have a little time left uh, let's talk about a topic that i love is you know leadership and we don't have to stick to particularly just higher ed but uh just your some of your views on leadership and as you see it today and uh yeah just let's have a conversation about that yeah well i've uh I've, like you, I've, I've read a lot on leadership um, and um, talking off air before we went on the podcast, you and I've bantered a lot about some of our favorite books and leaders and others. And uh, you and I were both basketball players. So I, you know, Who's I, your fav- what's your favorite leadership book? My fa- Well, my favorite leadership book is actually one called The Contrarian's Guide to Leadership by the former president at the University of Southern California, Stephen Sample who died a couple years ago. He was president there 19 years at USC, grew up on a farm in Missouri. But his advice in the book is, zig when everybody else zags. And I know that's a new catchy phrase, but he gives stories of don't always do what what the typical leader does. You have to think out of the box and do sometimes the exact opposite of what other people do. 
And the real quick example, which is kind of similar to this, I'll give, which is the one I remember the best out of the book. He took, a, he took an entire semester. He had all his advisors read the news. He did not pick up a newspaper for the whole semester. And every day he had a different a provost, an assistant dean, a, 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 a admissions director, admissions dean, come in and tell him, what, what's your take on Palestine and Israel? What's your take on American politics, blah, blah, blah. And he said, I learned from the person who was looking at it from a liberal perspective or a conservative perspective in the American sense of the term or a global perspective or just a higher ed oriented perspective. He said, I started to see the different ways people thought. And I thought that was so cool. But, but really overall, I think leadership um, is, is ultimately centered on the golden rule, you know, treating people like you'd want to be treated. And the reality is if, if you put yourself above the mission and the goals of the university, I always said this um, when Bobby Knight got fired up at Indiana that by Miles Brand, the president, I always said, ultimately, Bobby Knight thought he was bigger than the university. And the university had been there 100 plus years before him, and it was going to be there 100 plus years after him. So if being a dean is, is it's a great job, I love it, but I'm no more important than you know, anybody else on the team because it's not about me, it's about the university. Now, some will say, well, that, that sounds might be sound like hubris or false pride or whatever, but really I think it's true. I just don't, I, I think that we all have a role to play and, you know, it's people at our levels of leadership, Paul, we have to guide, we have to direct, we have to help people see different ways to look at things, but we also have to be able to listen. And that's, as a dean, that's been the most important thing I've been learning is shut my mouth as a former professor and listen to people. You know, and uh, you bring a good point up of, uh, of listening, uh, something that I know that I I must work on. Uh, <laughs> Me even, too. <laughs> I've even been told at home I need to work on it. And it's a daily reminder. Uh, I get continuing education on it constantly. So a lot of CEUs on listening. Now, you know, uh, it, 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 it brings a valid point, though, because my uh, view of leadership is... The ability to assist somebody to see what they cannot. Simplest terms, right? Yeah. Well, how can I do that if I, if I don't know anything about you? Because right. I'm more concerned with leading you, right. um, but I don't really know how to lead. And you right. know, I've had some conversations just admissions-wise of, of, yeah, we can automate processes and do everything digital and look cool and we can text. But if I don't know who you are, I don't know anything about you, one, I don't know any potential barriers out there for you, so I'm going to pass over them. And uh, it's not a genuine experience. Uh, but in higher ed, forgive me if I'm wrong, but a lot of us, you know, we have been part of, uh, of selling this bag of goods, and we say it really pretty much the same way that everybody else says it. Right. Right? The centralized, you know, attention. Yeah. One-on-one. Right. And, it doesn't, right. and here's the crazy thing is, everybody says it. Right. If how can that be true <laughs> you yeah. know it's like you know and i'm not yeah. saying that one university is saying it is or isn't but um I, we have to display that in the student engagement as early on and often as possible and mean it yeah uh, because uh we might have a list of programs here none of which would benefit you with what you just described your goal is now i think we can help students formulate what those those goals are and that's a uh, a conversation um, for a whole another podcast but when we're sitting down with students or they're engaging with faculty to make sure that when we know who this person is and I know that's that seems very overwhelming because there's a, you know a, there's so many students out there 
Um, but <clears throat> I think that if we can create that culture and start making that impact, uh, it could change. It's not just about getting them a degree at that point. It's also letting them know that you know we are invested in you, and it's not just because of I need you in class. It's because you told me this. Right. Um, and I know what that is, and I will say that yeah, it is probably easier to do on the in the uh, you know the smaller um, yeah. private universities, whether it's uh, profit or. F- okay, go ahead, Kurt. Uh, we're back. Sorry, there's this blipped a little bit. We uh, uh, had some uh, audio difficulties, but uh, Kurt, if you want to go ahead and wrap it up and uh, take us out. Yeah, um, real quick. Um, I agree with what you said, Paul. If uh, you know, I think the biggest challenge that we face because higher ed has become, instead of focusing on the mission, it's become all these other things, a lot of white noise. But the reality is, we all have to continue, and it's platitudinous to say this, but the reality is, the focus has to be on the student, not on the institution itself. And you've laid out a lot of important ideas and and mechanisms through which. We get the focus back on the student, especially in the enrollment area, that it cannot just be we're going to bombard them with one method of, of getting their attention in a sales sense. You know, it's got to be personal touch. It's got to be follow-up. It's got to be genuine caring for them. And then I also think honesty. If they, if they think they want a program that isn't going to work, I remember years ago at a school I worked at, Kids came and asked, the students came and asked about an agriculture program. We didn't have it. And one of our admissions professionals said, well, we'll try to cobble it together just to get them through the door. And we didn't do that kind of program at the liberal arts institution I was working at. And it was disingenuous and it was unprofessional. And the reality is you cannot do that uh, and stay true to the mission in yourself. And you're better off to tell them, go up to the state school that does agriculture and if you have a friend who'd like to come here and do history, or at least at Spalding, occupational therapy, or or athletic training, or or education, then this is the kind of school where that can be done. So I appreciate you having me on today. All right. Well, thank you for your time, Kurt. Uh, we'll uh, go ahead and head on out, and you all have a good day. Thanks for tuning in to Reboot, and take care.